The scripture reading comes to us from Psalm 62, verses 1 through 8. Let's give our full attention to this. I'll read it for us, starting at verse 1. This is a psalm of David to the choir master. Verse 1, for God alone, he is my soul, uh, sorry, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. This is verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So far, the eight verses of Psalm 62. Uh, We've been going through this series, Shalom, this is the second week, and uh, we defined Shalom as restoration, the restoration of all things, not only our human bodies, but the heavens and the earth, all relationships, the restoration of material and immaterial things. Also, we said it's completion, completion, last but not least, wholeness, wholeness of mind, body, estate. Now, who doesn't want that? I so long for that. I've been so wanting and praying this, especially in the last two years for you and for me to taste and experience what shalom really is according to the scriptures. Who doesn't want it? But according to this psalm, you you have to wait for it. We're going to have to wait for it. I don't know many people who like waiting for anything. I don't want to take any time. But let me suggest to you this morning, it took you a lot of time to get to your present condition. It took you a lot of time to be where you're at today. And so it just makes some sense. It's going to take some more time to grow, change, become what God desires for all of his people, a complete shalom. Today, we're going to talk about two disciplines in prayer. Two disciplines that this psalm instructs us specifically. First, silence. Second, wait. Two vital disciplines that not only help, but ought to be done in prayer. Silence and wait. Now, at the outset, just want to remind you folks, as your pastor, and I say this to myself, you are and you will never be more than your prayer life. My ceiling as your pastor, but more than that, as a son of God, a believer and follower of Jesus, my ceiling, I'm always going to hit that ceiling, and it's set by my prayer life. Two disciplines we've got to put into practice. We have to learn. 
in our personal prayer lives first is my soul. I put it in silence, silence. You know, of course, pre-pandemic and, of course, the pandemic continues to go on into an endemic. It's exposing a lot of things. I hope it is exposing, revealing some new things in our lives. And North American culture has been so packed with noise, activity, stress, which leads to numbness and just utter exhaustion. There was very little time or space for anything deep. Maybe even a meaningful conversation with your friend or your spouse through the week. Nothing left for the sacred. Nothing left over for God. You know, if you have little kids or junior high school, and as a good parent, you see your child do something pretty gross, pretty alarming. Potentially, that could be harmful if your child continues to do that. And so some of you... Take the discipline with your child of time out. We need a time out. You need to go into that corner, a time out of, of silence, quiet, because you want your child to stop, become more self-aware, reflect, think, like connect the dots of why did you do what you just did? Do you know what you just did? Do you know the impact of that or the fallout of that? Like, what were you thinking or feeling when, oh, child, you did this, which should lead to your time out, your time out? Now, has God, has God himself ever led you to take a time out with him? Do you let him? I mean, do you allow him? Right? There's a certain basketball team right now. It's really struggling. And that coach has got to take a lot, a lot of timeouts. I don't know if it's going to help. But does God ever take timeouts with you? Otherwise, are you suggesting, and actually, do you believe and feel that, uh, oh, I'm always doing good. I am always know what everything I should be about. And uh, there's really nothing to unlearn or learn or be corrected by or humbled by or cor- sharpened in any way. Silence. My soul in silence before God. So you might have to sit down for this one or lie down or take a long walk, but complete silence. No phone, no TV, nothing, nothing else. And you know what? We're going to try that right now. We're going to try that right now. Close your eyes if you want to. Look wherever you want to. And let's just take a moment of silence. Okay, calling us back. Some of you right away, you got freaked out. 
You're like, oh my goodness, <laughs> what, what was that? Uh, some of you the whole time just noticed, man, these seats are comfortable. I almost fell asleep, Pastor. You went another minute, I would have fell asleep. Some of you, your minds were racing frenetically. Just what has to be done later today or just what happened this morning. Some of you immediately start to feel something depressing or dark or painful. Some of you were just bored. Like, oh my goodness, how long is he going to go? Hurry up. I, I can't see my phone. Hurry. All kinds of things come up when you take moments of silence. That was too short. That was just a teaser. Maybe some of you felt a deep, deep peace of blessedness when you're just alone in silence. Now, don't be harsh with yourself. Don't rush these moments. But the things that come up if anything comes up, and all the surface-level thoughts you had about your breathing, the seats, other people, what am I doing with this time? I'm just going to suggest to you today that, again, this psalmist took regular extended moments of what we just did for about one minute as part of his spirituality and discipline before God. That this was a regular practice. It was a discipline in his prayer life before God. You know, silence, of course, mental health professionals will tell you, gold. Just turn down all the noise. Get rid of Netflix. Turn off the computer. Just clear your mind. Gold. Oh, that's therapeutic. Science is good for yoga. It's good for meditation. It's good just to take timeouts. But there is a silence where you get to quiet and slow down your soul to compose everything you've been going through and bring it to God. My friends, there's a silence that is a core spiritual discipline to really get in touch with what you've been really going through, what is the stuff underneath the hood, and to bring that to God. Verse 1, verse 1. It reads, yeah, I'm having, I'm going to read, I'm having a hard time with the um, reading when it gets all bright there. So yeah, that's tough for me. Hopefully you guys can read that. For God alone, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Why does he keep silent? Because he wants to go hard after God. Why does he get silent? Why does he shut down all the noise and distraction and busyness? All the things that would take his attention and energy? Why would you do that? Why, 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 why would anyone do that? It's so that he can compose everything he's going through and then give all of himself to go after God alone, to go after God alone. Pastor, pastor. But why would I have to do that before God when he sees and knows everything anyway? Why would I have to pray to God so much if he sees and knows everything anyway? You're absolutely right. But do you? 
Do you see and know everything anyway? Could it be that part of your prayer life with God is for God to get you to see what he sees and for you to articulate and speak to things the way that God would speak to it? And there's no other way that's going to happen. Oh, I used to be a good multitasker. I'm horrible now the little older I get. But I don't care how good you are at multitasking. There is no other way to get to what God sees and what God wants to speak to it than through the discipline of silence. Silence before God brings clarity. It brings clarity. Look at verses 3 and 4. 3 and 4 it reads, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Sorry. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Here's the clarity. Now, here's clarity that he got from his silence before God. I have enemies who attack me. I have enemies who batter me. And then he uses this most vivid imagery. He's like a tottering fence, a leaning wall. It's being just broken. It's just being hammered down, chopped down constantly. And then he is able to clearly discern the purpose and the plan of his enemies. They just want to take me down. They want to thrust me down. That's their goal and motive in life. They just want to bring me down. And then he discerns with clarity their methods of how they want to bring him down. And he says, they are flattering. They're nice. They're polite. They say great things in front of you, but behind you or around you, it is vicious and ruthless. They are flatterers, but they're liars. They're playing a political game. They have all these kinds of maneuvers that are dead set to bring him down. Now, I want to ask you, how many of you have that kind of clarity to even describe when you are hurting especially, when you are vulnerable, when you might be humiliated, when you're being attacked in this way, and you can discern through all that fluff and actually give such vivid, concrete, detailed imagery of what you really feel like and what you're going through. And then you go so far as to say, I know their end motive. And I know that what they're really trying to do. Now, please don't impugn motives. Please don't over-exaggerate your enemy's motives. Please don't assassinate their character unnecessarily. But here by the Spirit of God, because of silence before God, there's crystal clarity. And do you know how much of your shalom and well-being depends upon First, you just having clarity. Just clarity. Oh, oh, that's why I get angry. Oh, that's why I get so irritable. God, you've seen this about me. You knew this about me since the day I was born. But until I took some silent moments with you, I didn't see or speak to it the way that you would. Clarity. Clarity. Oh, here's a second feature that silence before God would bring. Verses 2 and 7. Verse 2. 
He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse 7. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Security. You kind of heard this saying, you become most like that which you idolize. You become most like that that you most look to or pay attention to or revere, respect, or honor. Sure. That saying is completely true. You and I become most like that which you run to. You and I become most like that which you look to. You and I become most like that in a disciplined, repeated, regular way that you run into the arms to. Arms of. Who is that? Here the psalmist says, my God is my rock, my fortress, my refuge. And because he keeps running into him, he takes after him. He says, I will not be shaken. The kind of clarity with his emotions and relationships. And then this kind of stability and security in the midst of all that kind of enmity and turmoil is remarkable, don't you think? You know, it's trendy for a while that more than your academic or intellectual intelligence, emotional intelligence counts much more. It may pave the way for more success, EQ. Now we're into Enneagrams and personality types, relational intelligence, absolutely a vital, vital self-awareness and skill to navigate through life. Oh, look at this psalmist. What kind of emotional and relational intelligence and resilience did this person have? While his enemies battered and beat him down. But the security that he had. Ah. This is everything that I just mentioned. Please don't dismiss. Wow, you're getting very therapeutic today, Pastor. The psychoanalytic stuff. Psychology stuff. Personality stuff. You're getting really touchy-feely today. Yeah, it is. But I want to tell you, it's here in the Psalms and is a vital part of your spiritual growth. You know, becoming more like Jesus involves and changes all dimensions of your life. Of how you feel, how you speak to it, and how you handle stress and conflict and even hate. Uh, a teacher was borrowing from the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. If we could project that up here and I'll read it for us. Life is going to hurt at times. And when it begins to hurt, don't panic. Because if you panic and try to avoid the hurt, you will often bring more pain into your life than the actual hurt. Don't run away from, avoid, deny, repress, mask, or medicate your hurt if you don't have to. Just let it hurt. Let the hurt wash over you like a wave and let it pass. Hmm. 
mental health secret. It's ironic. Those who hurt well, those who suffer well, heal well. Those who hurt appropriately, humbly, patiently, those who hurt necessarily, those who hurt honestly, those who let it hurt, lends itself to healing. If you fight this, if you don't want to do this, you're sleeping through this right now at this moment, um, what it's going to do is it's going to constantly make you more insulated. You're going to protect yourself from reality. Or you're going to be removed from the present moment. You know, there's always that person who's just, you know, a little bit distant, just off, detached. It's not just that the person's on the phone while you're talking with them. No, you know there's something where that person has gone to another place, another time. They're not fully present in this moment. If you don't let it hurt, that moment of hurt in the past, actually you get frozen and locked into it at times. Or, as some psychiatrists would say, you become a bundle of neurotic symptoms, constantly trying to avoid and protect yourself from any further hurt. You know, there was a growing suspicion, but it's a recent revelation for me that I avoid silence because I don't like hurt. I don't want to hurt. I mean, if you leave me long enough years ago in a silent moment corner for about half an hour to an hour, at some point, after all the superficial racing thoughts kind of wane away and you start your mind and your heart starts to rest, it gets quiet and you start to concentrate and things just start to really start coming up and all these things. There was a dominant, dominant, dominant note in my longer extended times of silence. It was grief. It was an ungriefed grieves. Ungrieved griefs. And so what I like to do, it's so much easier to not let it hurt in silence. It's so much easier to just move past it, get busy, don't think about it, ignore it, avoid it. Just add some accomplishments and performances on top of it. Mm. But if you don't let it hurt, and you don't let it hurt the way that it should hurt, not only is that subhuman... It's actually the very thing that the psalmist does not do. Oh, pastor, wow, today, Carl Jung in psychiatry? You're quoting these guys? Okay, if you're wary of them, fine. Read the psalms. Read the psalms. And then I want you to look at Jesus. What was Jesus doing there? Retreating, prioritizing, treasuring, loving his moments of what? Silence before God his Father. What was he doing? Why was he doing that? Why should you and I do that? Here's the, one of the results in the lives of Jesus. Look at Jesus. He was never apathetic. Never apathetic. Never bored. Never distracted. Never overreacting. Never disingenuous. Never out of control. In the life of Jesus, where do you get that kind of 
composure, clarity, security. Where do you get that kind of life? My goodness. You want to become more like Jesus? You want to change into the fullness and the stature and the beauty and the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ? You and I must learn to follow his ways. And one of his ways, a practical discipline, is silence. Number two, last one. Wait. <laughs> Shalom. But you're going to have to wait for it. My soul in silence. In silence, what does he do? My soul waits for God alone. This psalm has no immediate fix. None. Read it. Many more psalms don't have an immediate fix. This allows all of us, this allows you and I, to not have to feel like you have to silver line everything. This allows you and I to believe and know things may not get better right away. This is a psalm that gives all of us not only permission, but encouragement. Don't short-circuit the process. Certain things have to run its natural course. And you're going to have to wait for it. You know, like when you get a deep cut on your leg, you just got to let that bleed. You got to let it scab, and then you got to let it fall off. Certain things, you have to wait for it. Teresa of Avila to St. John of the Cross in the 16th century, this was first presented to me in one of my early counseling sessions of last year. A beginner must look on himself as one setting out to make a garden for his Lord's pleasure on most unfruitful soil which abounds in weeds. His majesty roots up the, wood, uh, roots up the weeds and will put in good plants instead. Mm, so here we are. Picture that with me. Your soul, your life is like a garden you want to present before God, his majesty. You want to make that look as beautiful and as orderly and tidy and impressive as you could possibly want it because you want this to be presented to God. When I heard this image, my instinctive reaction like this, let's get at those weeds. Oh, I can't wait, counselor. Let's identify the weeds. Let's analyze the weeds. Let's figure out where those weeds came from. And uh, I'm going to do everything possible now in my power to get those weeds out. And, you know, as I usually do, I missed the crucial point, the point of this whole image of Teresa of Avila, which is, but his majesty is the one that pulls up the weeds. Only God can rip up the weeds, meaning only God is the one that could get at it from its roots. Only God is the one in your garden that can get at those weeds and do the most appropriate job of uprooting all those things that shatter your shalom. And until God does it, 
until God chooses to do the way that he wants to do it. Until how God wants to do it, my job is to wait. It's to sit in it and wait. You know, Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 12, it's an ominous thing. He's talking about demonic activity there, demonic strangleholds. He's saying, you know, if one demon leaves, uh, you didn't do it right. The demon brings back seven more wicked, stronger spirits. Jesus goes on to say in translate, you could be worse off than before when you only take care of symptomatic surface level stuff, but never pull up the weeds from its roots. Where only his majesty can pull up those weeds. Ah, verse 8, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. You see, while we wait, to trust in God means that he will not work on my timetable. While we wait, it implicitly means that at all times, I am trusting you, O God. To do things that I could never do. To do things far better than I could do. To do things in ways that if I try to do what God is doing, I actually make it worse. And it all backfires. You know, people who start to work out maybe a little bit for physical exercise, you don't feel the immediate payoff, do you? One week, three weeks. No, it's usually a couple months after. And then maybe a year after. And then five years down the road, all that little work you put in, and then five years later, you look back and say, I can't believe how unhealthy I was five years ago. The payoff, the benefits, the returns start to all kick in. And here in the core spiritual discipline of the psalmist, he says, not only am I going to quiet, compose, be silent in my soul, but while I am quiet, I'm going to wait, wait. Trusting in God at all times that he will do what he has always promised to do, which is to make you perfect and complete like Jesus and to bring you eternal shalom. You see, in other words, all the psalmists learned how to wait on God. I know in our culture, that's the last thing we want to do. Have we learned to wait on God? And while you are waiting on God, you can better understand, you can be much more patient, you can be much more gentle, and you can empathize much more with everyone around you because they're all waiting too. They're all waiting as well. You know, so often, when you get hurt, and it's kind of an egregious, real, real kind of deep hurt, such as life and such as ministry, when you love people, there is hurt that's just utterly involved in that. And so often, that hurt that comes and passes into your heart, usually it's because of a hurt in that person's life that he or she has not faced or forgiven from the past. And it's kind of projected back toward you. You don't have to take it so personal, no. But that is some hurt that is passing to that person's life and it's never been faced. It never really hurt. It never got healed. And then it continues to come out as hurt. You know, people who grew up, you know, households, yes, lacking integrity, 
stability. A parent just walked out. A parent cheated. A parent was involved in fraud. There's a lot of shame, but then there was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of trauma. You did not have shalom. And so you carry that into your future life. And when conflict comes, when conflict comes, you either want to completely avoid it. There's no more bandwidth left for that conflict. Or you overreact to that conflict. Or create more conflicts from that conflict. You know, this is what David needed for his God to do. And this is what you and I need so much for God to do in our lives. Here's what David needed, at least in this song. God, I'm going to wait because you got to have to save me from these lying, treacherous, murderous, vicious enemies. God, you have to do something that I could never do, which is what? you got to do the saving. My soul waits in silence for God alone. For from him comes my what? For from him comes my what? Verse 1. My salvation. My salvation. You know, as we go through this series, as we learn to be silent and as we learn to wait in our prayer lives, my heart for you and our congregation is next to Jesus, there's probably nothing more that forms and deforms you than your family history, than your family origins. Uh, it wasn't until I was 46, 47, I had any even silent moments to even think about it. I even think about it, like what formed these kinds of tendencies and things where in my heart, there were certain non-negotiable absolutes. And I assure you, they were not from God. Family history and origins. Oh, God, you've got to do the saving. There are certain things that were traumatic, very hurtful. Oh, God, you've got to do the saving. There are certain great things about work or success or even how you handled money. Thank you, God, but still, God, you've got to do the saving. And when it comes to marriage, parenting, family, all kinds of things that we go through life, shalom, shalom requires a soul in silence who waits on God and is okay with the waiting. In July 2014, a gal by the name of Emily, she's a 32-year-old, wrote to the evangelical church entitled, From a Recovering Progressive. And the reason she wrote this article was, why do so many youth leave the church and leave the Christian faith? Maybe for a while or for good. Thank God we've been praying for a youth retreat. Her day had a fantastic time who just came back. Packed house, they're wonderful. But why do so many youth end up leaving the church or the faith? Here's a confession from Emily. She says, we're not letting them feel the brokenness of the world. If we're not letting them press their heart to God, to God's, through the pain of humanity, they'll simply feel guilty over their sin versus realizing they need a savior. Jesus did not come to save those who do and say the right things or to turn mean people into nice people or bad people into good people. No, he came to resurrect us 
But we cannot know we need resurrecting unless we first experience death and decay. And that's what we need to do as Christians. Trust God enough to show up at the right time and save our children. Trust God at all times. Wait on him to do the saving that no parent or human being can ever do. Later in this article, Emily says that in God's time as a 32-year-old, she met with a counselor who happens to be a friend, and that friend prayed with her for three hours straight. Three hours of prayer. And as the love of God, who is her father, started to pierce through, that's what she needed most. Happens in progressive or evangelical churches. Doesn't matter. But when she started to really believe and feel that the love of God is unconditional, that gospel comes first, she said at the end of that prayer, she saw and felt that she had finally come back home. In God's time, three hours of prayer, what a story. Now, I find it that Stories like this, talking it out, talk shows, reality shows, going to therapist or counselor has lost its stigma and shame. And I think it's wonderful. You know, your pastor has been seeing counseling. I think it's, we should celebrate this absolute wide open arms. But at the same time, I have to tell you, but do you go and talk this out with and to God? And his people in prayer. You know, Pastor Jimmy recently just said off the cuff at our staff meeting, when we're going through some of the things we're praying for for you, and he was saying, it's not so much fatigue that sets in for pastors, it's profound sadness. It's just sadness because of the sadness that you may be going through. That's how much he loves and cares, and so do all of our pastors. And he says, when I bring that before God, he says, there is no way in prayer before God I can be dishonest about that. I can't hide anything from God when I come to him in prayer. And this is why in Psalm chapter 39, verses 2 and 3, it reads this. I was mute and silent. We've been talking about silence. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse my heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. Oh, so you read the Psalms and how it all brings together. There are plenty of moments you need to take silence. Of course, silence from the world so that you can compose your soul and wait on God. But this does not mean remain silent with God and silent to God. No, he says, no, it's like a fire that erupted. It felt like I was getting worse, and I had to now blurted out. I had to pour out my soul. Verse 8 of our Psalm 62. I had to wail and weep. I had to express everything that I have been really, really, really going through because my friend, there is no one else. You can pour out all of your heart and soul too. I can truly understand it. I can fully handle it. And not only take it, but love you and serve you all the more because of it. No one. My soul waits in silence to go after God alone. To go after God alone.
Where do we get this notion that when you pray, you could only bring the brightest, neatest, beautiful, put-together parts? You certainly don't get it from the Psalms. God is more attractive, if I might say. God likes, God wants the most hurtful, painful, broken parts of you so that he can bring about restoration, completion, and wholeness. Shalom. If you could get it any sooner, God would give it to you. But God will not give it to you any sooner. Otherwise, it wouldn't best serve or sanctify or restore or complete or make you and others around you whole. No, you and I don't have to require a storybook ending today. I wish I could speed this up for you, but I can't. Neither can you. I wish I and podcasters and pastors and gurus and teachers and people you might watch online can just spoon feed you this stuff and you'd be fine, but there is no way around it. Spoon feeding you will not substitute for you going home and practicing silence and waiting on God. I can and happily and earnestly will always point you to Jesus. There is none other like him. I will always point you to run and fall into the arms of Jesus. And he will meet you completely there. But you have to practice and find direct from the source, direct from your Savior, direct from your God, as your soul waits in silence. Let me pray for us as we close. Let me give you just a couple moments here. A little more moments here now of silence. In your response or any thoughts and prayers, you may want to turn to God now at this moment. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. O oh Lord, pray by your gentle power, your absolute love. You are so good to us that you would only allow it to hurt in order for it to heal. You would only show us things so you can save us from those things. Lord, help us to believe and feel that. Teach us now, O Lord, your people, for their souls to wait in silence. I pray that you would spark and recover a life of prayer. That as we wait and go after you alone, wait upon you, we will find a rock, a refuge, a fortress. From him comes my salvation. To be all the glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.